Yeah, well, we were going to keep that one quiet. <laughs> it's good to be here. Let me get situated. Thanks, James. Let's read together the passage at which we'll be looking this morning, Genesis chapter 3. In fact, if you'd like, don't even turn there. And I'll go ahead and read it for you. And then we'll pray and I'll offer a word or two about James. And then we'll (laughs) dive into our passage. You know what? I'm having a little trouble keeping this on here. There we go. Genesis chapter 3. Hear God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face uh, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust." And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made Adam 
for his wife, uh, made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And thus far, God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your singular word would meet the many needs that are represented in this room this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus and by his Spirit. Amen. Well, it is good to be here with you this morning. Um, it's, It's not really a homecoming for me, but I've been to Canada very few times in my life, and yet it is the place from which my mother's entire side comes. My uh, maternal grandfather was born in British Columbia. Uh, my grandmother was born in Nova Scotia, and my mom was born right here in Toronto. So we, we cover the breadth of, uh, of Canada. In fact, it was tremendous being in this home uh, yesterday, in which I believe my mother might have even been born down on Weneva Street, just up from Kew Beach in, um, in Toronto. And kudos to you for hiring James Seward and Karen. You get a two-for-one on, on this hire. James, James is really at his best when he's among people and he's advancing the uh, cause of the gospel and doing that in community, doing that with you. So I think it's safe to say, um, and I've already had, just from the time I walked into the door less than an hour ago, a wonderful experience with many of you. You're so warm and welcoming. It says a lot about where this church has been. Dare I say your best days are ahead of you. So the Lord bless you as you uh, begin this life together with uh, the Seward family. Uh, a church that can advance the gospel together as a church that understands the gospel. And an understanding of the gospel begins with a realization of just how bad men and women actually are. Um, I met up with a fellow uh, when I was in college. I was an aspiring uh, ministerial student. He had been in ministry for some time. And I asked him, if there's one piece of advice that you could give to me as one who's aspiring to go into ministry, what, what might that be? And without missing a beat, he simply said that men and women are just as bad as the Bible says that they are. So that's step one in understanding the gospel. Our sin is great. But here's step number two. God's grace is greater. And so those are the two points to this sermon this morning. Very simple outline. Uh, The greatness of our sin, that's point number one, but point number two, God's grace is greater. In fact, if you remember nothing else this morning, 
you, you need only remember this. God's grace is greater. So those are the two things at which we'll be looking at this morning. And if you can remember those, those things, uh, Maple Avenue Baptist Church has a great future uh, ahead of it. Well, let's begin by looking at the original sin, which is contained for us in verses 1 through 6. And as we do, I, I want you to notice where that sin takes place. It takes place in Eden, which a chapter before is described as uh, lush and well-watered. The prophet Ezekiel refers to it as the garden of God. It is in every way a paradise. In fact, if there's any place that you would think is impermeable to sin, it would be Eden. But interestingly, even there, the adversary is alive, he's active, and he is on the move. So, the, the, the greatness of our sin begins in the last place that you'd think it would occur. It begins in the Garden of Eden. I, uh, James mentioned I work at a Christian uh, university, and sometimes students refer to it as the bubble, as if nothing of any great consequence happens at Taylor University. Oh, yes, Satan is there, and he is on the move. Well, how does Satan... Um, bring Adam and Eve to sin. What's interesting to notice is what he doesn't do. He doesn't push them into it. He doesn't say to them, hey, come on over here and, and take a look at all it." No, he, he draws them into sin. He, he, he actually seduces them into sin. And he does that by way, take note, he does that by way of God's word. And it's important for us to note that because that's the same way he works with you and me. It's it's the same way that he tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness all those years later. He takes God's word and he twists it. And so he seduces Eve here by way of what Bonhoeffer called the first conversation about God. And he challenges God's word before Eve and Adam by taking away from it. So whereas God says back in 2.16, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat except this one, he says to Eve, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So at this point, one of two things should have happened. Eve should have heard that, turned around, and run away. Or Adam should have grabbed his wife and turned around and run away because Adam is the one to whom that word was given. Eve only knows it because of Adam. When, when the, the adversary is speaking to the woman and he, he says you, he's actually speaking in the plural. He's, he's, uh, it implies that the man is also there as well. So in fact, this is why God later describes Eve as having been deceived in 2 Corinthians 11.3. She was deceived. Adam is guilty of a blatant transgression. Now, I want you to notice something here. I'm just going to kind of sidebar for a second. In Genesis 1 and 2, the world is created in an orderly fashion. 
And this is God's order. God speaks everything into existence by way of his word. He creates man to whom he gives his word. Out of man he creates woman. Man gives to woman God's word. And together they rule over God's creation. But here in Genesis chapter 3, that whole order is flipped around. It's inverted. So you have, have the adversary who's, who's expressed as an animal here. He is now trying to exercise authority over the man and woman. And later we'll see in the chapter, the man and woman are trying to exercise authority over God by whom they were created. So everything is topsy-turvy. And any kind of sin in today's world, you can often trace back to this inverted order. So the adversary takes away from God's word. How does Eve respond to that? Well, she responds to the adversary's craftiness, not by defending God's word, but rather by adding to it. So whereas God said back in chapter 2, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you shall surely die, The woman adds here in verse 2 of chapter 3, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Here's something that's very helpful to remember. If God's word is a line, then those who take away from it, those who go below it like the adversary, are guilty guilty of what we would refer to as uh, liberalism. But those who go above it, like Eve, can succumb to what we often refer to as legalism. It's important to talk about God's word, but it's most important to do so while staying on the line. Because when you can stay on the line of God's word, then you have what occurs throughout the Old Testament, uh, revival. Like in the time of Ezra, when the word was recovered and people began living according to it and revival breaks out. Or throughout the uh, New Testament, especially in the pastoral epistles, people live by the word and the church grows strong. The effects of discussing God's word otherwise can be devastating. And uh, we see that in uh, what happens here now between the adversary and the woman. The the adversary replies in, um, I don't know, some say a haughty tone, some say kind of cool and passive. I'm not really sure. We know what he says, which is basically, are are you sure that God said that? I don't think God said that. And what he does in, in, in saying that to Eve is encourage her to believe, well, first he impugns God's character. And then what he communicates is, you know, disobedience to God actually brings about blessing. While reacting to the skewed reasoning of the adversary, the woman makes two mistakes. The first mistake is not a fatal one, but it's pretty tough to recover from it. The second one is fatal. And you can reduce these two mistakes to two words, look and took. She looked and then she took. That's what ushered sin onto the stage of human history. It's the same thing that ushers sin into our lives. We look and then we take. 
Take a look here in verse number six. She sees that the tree is good for food. It's delicious. So she starts salivating. She sees that the tree is a delight to her eyes. It's beautiful. So she starts coveting. She sees that it's desirable to make one wise. It's beneficial. She starts idolizing. If only she would have just looked away, if she just averted her eyes. You know, we see this pattern of look and took other places in the scripture. When you think of um, Achan, Achan was a part of that band of Israel that crossed the river and took Jericho. Remember God said you can take Jericho as a city, but don't take anything from it. But Achan looks at a coat, he covets the coat, and he takes it for himself. David does the same thing, right? He, he looks at Bathsheba, he covets after her, and he takes her. And, and what makes this slope so slippery is that each person is trying to fulfill a legitimate need. I mean, what does Achan want? Achan just wants a little security. You know, something in the back pocket in case something happens. David is longing for intimacy. Eve is longing for wisdom. But by looking, they they are seduced. They are drawn into fulfilling these legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. Ones that are contrary to God's word. So the question is, what's the lesson for us? And the lesson for us is simple. Don't look. Don't look lest you take. If the movie, if the website, if the play has the possibility of causing you to fall into sin, just don't look. Just don't go there. Now, it seems rather uptight, doesn't it? I mean, especially since... As evangelicals, we are characterized, especially by one very popular survey that was taken uh, by a group out of Southern California. We are known as the people of no, right? We're the contrarians. But here's something that I find fascinating. In Psalm 1, the first person to whom we're introduced is the blessed man, who's arguably a, a type of Jesus Christ. By what is the blessed man known? Some of you know that psalm by heart. Blessed is the man who does not, does not, does not. He's known as a blessed man for what he doesn't do. In fact, he's known for not only refusing to sin, but working at avoiding it altogether. That's why Job made a covenant with his eyes that he would avoid looks that lead to sin, Job 31.1. Now, if that approach still seems uh, too uptight, consider the results of Eve's look. Of course, it means that she took. woman takes the fruit in verse 6. And in taking the fruit, she violates God's word. But here, here's what's fascinating. There's a Puritan fellow by the name of William Perkins, and William Perkins got to, thinking about, got to thinking about Eve's sin. And he realized that she not only sinned in one way, she actually sinned in a number of ways by taking 
and eating the fruit. Let me just rattle these off for you. Number one, uh, since a woman disobeys God's word, she's guilty of blasphemous unbelief. Number two, since the woman believes God is withholding something from her, she becomes guilty of contempt and sordid curiosity. Number three, since a woman wants to be like God, she's guilty of pride and ambition. That, that point in particular reminds me of the old um, Harvard University coat of arms. When, when the coat of arms was, was drawn up back in the 1600s, it featured three books. Two of those books were, no, two of those books were face up. The third book was face down. The two books that were face up were communicating that there is some knowledge, much knowledge, that can be known by men and women. But that book that was facing down was uh, communicating that there is some knowledge that is known only to God and that can only be known to us by way of his revelation. Well, in about the mid-1800s, a fellow by the name of Charles Eliot, who was the president of Harvard at the time, in fact, he was the editor of a series of books with which you may be familiar, the Harvard Classics. And Eliot recast the Harvard Coat of Arms and he took that third book, which had formerly been down, and he flipped it around. So all three books now face up. In fact, I had occasion to just look at that coat of arms the other day. It, it popped up on the internet. And there they were, all three books facing up. And, and the whole point there is that truth is not revealed, but it's discovered. And it's entirely within the power of human ability to even discover it all. In fact, Ralph Waldo Emerson put it this way, in yourself slumbers the whole of reason. It's for you to know it all. Eve wanted to be a know-it-all. She wanted to be like God. Number four, since a woman refused to be thankful for everything God had given her, she became guilty of discontentment and ingratitude. At number five, since the woman's disobedience leads to her own death, she's guilty of murder. Now, here's the Western view of Adam and Eve. Hey, you know what? It's their prerogative. They, they can do what they want, just so long as they don't hurt anybody else. But that's the problem. Sin always hurts somebody else. It refuses to exist in isolation. And that's what we get um, when we look back on those other persons. You know, I mean, uh, the woman here enlists the man to take part in her sin. And what happens? They die. What happens when Achan wants to hide the coat? He enlists the help of his family. What happens to them? They're all killed. David draws Bathsheba into his lust and sin. What happens? The baby dies. Is it any wonder that Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death? That's right. Well, interestingly, what the adversary promises the man and the woman comes true. Their eyes are open. But instead of ascending to the heights which is what they thought would happen, they actually began to swirl down into these dark, dark depths. 
These are the consequences of sin. I want you to notice something, too. It's very interesting. At the very end of uh, chapter 2, th this is God's last word concerning his very good world that he had created. The, the, the very last thing he says about it is, uh, right at the end of chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now compare that with the initial consequence of their sin here in chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So the thing about which they were once ignorant and epitomized their freedom is, is now the thing about which they are entirely aware and expresses the degree of their shame. You know, one would hope that knowledge like that would, would drive Adam and Eve back to God. But as one scholar points out, sin always runs from its cure. And so we read in verse 7, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. An indication, according to Nahum Sarna, a great uh, Jewish scholar, that Adam and Eve really were already out of the garden. So they try to hide. And one way that they attempt to hide is by covering their nakedness. Another way in which they attempt to hide is by covering their tracks. And so you see here in verse number 8, they hear God coming, and so they hide in the trees. Let's see, don't, don't we know from Psalm 139 that uh, there's nowhere that one can go from God's Spirit, nowhere anybody can go from His presence? So we know that this, uh, this attempt, it's a losing enterprise from the outset. And if it wasn't so tragic, it would be comical. I mean, this is the very same kind of thing that we try to do from time to time. We, we want to run from God. We want to hide from God for whatever reason. We're thinking uh, in a way that we shouldn't. We're doing something like we shouldn't. So how do we hide? Well, I just won't go to the place where God is. I won't go to church. Or I won't go to small group. Or I'll involve myself with something other than God, like sex or success or, or even what Adam and Eve were engaged in here, the worship of self. But here's the thing that blows me away about this chapter. Well, man and woman should be pursuing God, throwing themselves at his feet, pleading for his mercy. God is the one who's actually pursuing them. So, so having examined the greatness of our sin, that's the first point. We're done with that now. We're going to look at the greater grace of God. And it comes to us here in six waves. Six waves of God's grace. The first wave is the grace of inquiry and not indictment. I mean, God doesn't directly indict them by saying, why did you disobey me by eating from that tree? He doesn't even indirectly indict them by saying, Hey, what are you doing hiding over there in that grove of trees? No, he, he rather simply inquires of the man to whom he had originally given the word. He asks, well, why are you here? Why, why are you here? Giving the man a chance to confess his circumstances. Why he's there 
and uh, why he's there, where he is and why he's there. And while God could have done that from a distance, you know, from behind a cloud or by way of a lightning bolt or something like that, he comes down to Adam and Eve. You, you, you see him do that again at Babel. He does it again at Sodom. He does it fully and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. Ulrich Zwingli said in so many words, this is true accountability. This is incarnational discipleship. He doesn't mail it in. He doesn't text it. He doesn't, doesn't Twitter. He, he comes to them and he addresses them in person. How this man and woman respond to those gracious overtures Verse number 10, uh, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. No admission of guilt, no expression of contrition. One scholar observes, the man was more ashamed of his nakedness than he was his sin. I mean, that, that is de jour. That sounds like what happens today on, oh, well, I could get more specific, but you've heard these kind of confessions on TV where a person is, is, is more concerned about self-embarrassment, self-disappointment, self-regret than an unqualified admission of sin against God and others. And yet, instead of belittle, belittling or berating the man, God comes along with a second wave of grace. Again, one of inquiry, not indictment continues to gently but firmly question the man. In verse 11, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, I work with university students. I had a boss. He was a dean of students. And he said to me once about a particular discipline case, he said, I had the student in my office, and he said, I pitched him a slow one, meaning I gave him a big, fat chance to come clean a chance to confess. And that's what God is doing right here. He's pitching at him a slow one. But instead of swinging at the pitch, the man responds by playing the blame game, which is another form of hiding to which we uh, succumb. Notice in verse 12, the man says, the woman, so he's pulling his wife into this thing, and then he says, whom you gave to me. Now he's trying to make God complicit in his sin. She gave me from the tree and I ate. So this, this woman whom just a chapter before was his shining bride has now become his sullied accomplice. So God turns to the woman and in a third wave of grace, he inquires of her. No accusations, no indictments. Verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman responds, the serpent deceived me, so I ate. So like the man, she attempts to hide her sin. She blames the adversary. No admission of guilt, no contrition. And then finally, in verses 13 through 19, you get this fourth wave of grace. You get the loving discipline of God. And I want you to notice this, because this is super helpful. It's helpful in, in, in parenting. God disciplines not like a judge, but like a father. He's very gentle. He's firm, 
but he's gentle. So we see that the man and the woman are not cursed. That's a great grace. The adversary is cursed. The man and the woman are not cursed. The woman still bears children. That's a great grace. Now, she does so with elevated pain, but she still bears children. The man will still draw his living from the soil. That's a great grace. Now, he's going to do that with toil. The thing out of which he created is now working against him, but God affords him the ability to still draw his living from the soil. Now, I I want to clarify a couple of things at this point that you may have been thinking when we read this passage together. First of all, what do you do in verse 16 um, with the, the husband and the wife? This enduring relationship between these two. It says there, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What does that mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean that a husband has an honest excuse to mistreat his wife. Um, He shall rule over you cannot be understood in the extreme, just in the same way that pain in childbirth doesn't mean as much suffering as possible. So then what does it mean? Well, it means that a relationship that was once marked by freedom is now fraught with a whole bunch of challenges. And yet... God's word helps us to work through those challenges. The Old Testament makes provision to protect women from unscrupulous men, Deuteronomy 24. The New Testament takes steps to prevent women from male domination, Ephesians chapter 5. Encourage love and protection without harshness, Colossians chapter 3. The second thing that may be churning around in your head has to do with the value of discipline. I mean, God, I thought you were forgiving. So why don't you just forgive them? Give them a mulligan. Let them go back, tee it up again, and start over. But in God's economy, sin is a serious thing. A fellow by the name of Johannes Brentz once reasoned, when a sin is committed against the eternal God and his eternal word, it is fitting to punish the crime with an eternal penalty. And yet here's the deal. Discipline is a sign of God's love. So Proverbs 3 tells us, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Hebrews chapter 12, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. There was an alumnus of uh, Taylor University who came to me, graduated back in the late 90s, told me about three friends of his who got in trouble, two of which went through the discipline process, one of them did not. And the reason that one fellow did not go through the process is because this gentleman who's telling me the story lied for him. And he said, all these years later, there's two things that I really feel bad about. One is that I lied. And the second thing is, the two fellows that went through the discipline process actually benefited from it. In fact, they learned life-changing lessons from the discipline. He said, the guy for whom I lied... He didn't learn anything. In fact, that just led to more troubles, not only in that day, but throughout his life. He said, at the point this guy was telling me the story, he was still leading a pretty dodgy existence. So God's love in dealing with the man and woman is expressed by discipline. That's a fourth wave of grace. And then, beginning in verse 21, you have this final stroke of discipline 
accomplished in a fifth wave of grace. God clothes Adam and Eve. You know, they dressed themselves in these wilting leaves. Um, God now dresses them in something permanent before sending them from the garden. But here's how he does it. He does it at the expense of a life. Even then, grace comes by way of the shedding of blood. The skins of animals were used to cover the skin of Adam and Eve. So creation is beginning to suffer for the sin of the man and the woman. And then to prevent further temptation and ruin, God, it says in verse 23, he sends them from the garden. The implication there is they didn't want to go. So in verse 24, he has to drive them out. And then he posts sentinels at the entrance to keep them from coming back, lest they eat from the tree of life and humankind's sinful condition is made permanent. Here's the beautiful thing. By driving Adam and Eve from the garden, God makes it possible for Adam and Eve and for you and me to live now in the hope of salvation rather than the enduring ravages of sin. And he expresses that hope in verse 15, which is really the central and sixth final wave of grace. So with this, we begin to wind down. You know, it was this past Easter Sunday morning, I was reading John chapter 20 in my devotions. And in the midst of reading John chapter 20, which is about the resurrection, it it occurred to me, you know what? The resurrection is the answer to Genesis chapter 3. And we get our first glimpse of John 20. We get our first glimpse of a resurrection in 3.15. Remember, God doesn't curse the man or the woman, but he does curse the adversary. He says that, well, he will bruise the man's heel, while the adversary will bruise the man's heel, the man is going to bruise or crush the head of the adversary. The ultimate curse being that of death right? Paul identifies the head crusher in Genesis chapter 3 as Jesus, who unlike Adam and Eve did not equate equality with God a thing to be grasped, did he? No, he didn't. He especially identifies Jesus as the head crusher in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. In Romans 5 beginning in verse 7, Paul illustrates the depth of that love by stating that Well, one may die for a good person. Jesus died for all persons, even while we were yet sinners. And then beginning in verse 12, he illustrates the height of God's grace by stating that sin and death came into the world through the first Adam, but grace and life came into the world through the second Adam, who is Jesus. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, he just says, you know what, Adam, he brought death. But Jesus Christ, he brought life. Because he's the head crusher. So when you stop and think about it, in human terms, Genesis 3 should really be the last chapter of the Bible. Should be the last chapter in a very short book on human history. But instead, it turns out to be the opening line in a history of hope that outlasts the history of the whole world. Hope that turns our sin on its head. Hope that clothes our shame 
in the grace of God. Hope that causes us to resonate with the great Baptist C.H. Spurgeon who said, I have learned to kiss the wave that slaps me against the rock of ages. Hope that afforded the thief crucified next to Christ to consider that day the best one of his life because on that day his sin was the means by which he was introduced to the greater grace of God. Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Grace that caused Julia Johnston to write just over a hundred years ago words that we sang uh, earlier in the service. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Brothers and sisters, sin, it's, um, it's a terrible thing. Alienates us from God, alienates us from one another, robs us of our sense of dignity, makes us thirsty for things that cannot satiate our cravings. But, you know, as terrible as it is, sin can humble us and point us to the one who knew no sin yet became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him once for all. That's when the greatness of our sin is subdued by the greater grace of God in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. So my question for you this morning is, what are you doing with your sin? Do you want to be know-it-all? Do you want to hold on to it? And in the process, let it eat you alive? Or do you want to hand it over to God in Christ so that you can become more than you could have ever imagined yourself being? Just take a moment and prayerfully consider that, and then we'll be led in song to close.